I was going to make the most sarcastic, facetious-sounding argument, but you've headed me off. Um, <laughs> you, you guys don't like infield fly balls? But I let it ride last night, guys, and I uh, I won three dollars on the blackjack table. Whoa! So that was a good. It was, yeah. Brag, I assume it knocks you out. Yeah. That sounds like know. a drug habit, man. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and welcome once again to Artificial Turf Wars. It's episode number 125, where we are still waiting for the Blue Jays to make their selection in the Rule 6 draft. I'm your host, Greg Wisniewski, <laughs> and I am joined tonight by Joshua Housem. Josh? Hey. And because something actually happened and Josh and I are incapable of handling that much activity in, in one week, we brought Nick Dyke upon. <laughs> hey, Greg, how's it going? It's going well. It's going well. Glad to have you back in the virtual booth, as it were. Um, so we have we have things to discuss. We have the exit of Troy Tulowitzki. Uh, we have a couple of Rule 5 exits and one unexpected entrance from a guy named Elvis, which, I mean, just, just in that should be discussed. Um, you... We're talking with us earlier and we thought we'd expand on what is Randall Grichuk to the Blue Jays. And then we have some AL East news, some bullet points from the winter meetings, uh, including an interesting quote from Ross Atkins on Bo Bichette. And uh, yeah, we're going to have a couple of interviews as well from uh, Bennett Brower, who writes with uh, BP Toronto and, and Baseball Prospectus, and from Shai Davidi of Sportsnet. Possibly not in that order. I will move on, though. The big news, Troy Tulowitzki is going to make a fool out of Josh this season. No, he's not. No. He, well, he is because I said he's going to be the Blue Jays starting shortstop. So he, that's not his. He already has done that. Oh, okay. We're, we're past that point already. Oh, yeah. I lost that one a long time ago. I still think he's going to play. And I think he's going to be decent. I said, well, like, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for this move and we'll get into them. But I do think that right now he's still the best shortstop that the Jays could have on their active roster because Bobachet's not making the opening day lineup. I think that's fair. Um, So I guess the question, Nick, is why would the Blue Jays make this move now in your your mind right i you know i have to think it has to do with just opening up playing time uh for the young players uh, i do agree with josh i think he is probably still the best overall shortstop on the team but i think they just given where they are in kind of their competitive window they value getting guys like lourdes guriel and I guess Richard Urena um, at bats more than they kind of value, you know, a two and a half to three and a half win season from Tulo. Yeah. And as for now specifically, as in like why this week, I think it's two things. One, Tulowitzki lives in Vegas and they wanted to talk to him in person about this with his agent. Everyone was going to be in the same spot at the same time. And also, I think if he feels he's ready to play and, and wants to play again next year, this gives him time to go and find a new job. But, you know, if they release him in spring training, it's a lot harder to find somewhere else to play. So they're sort of doing him a favor at the same time as clearing their roster the way Nick mentioned. I, I think it does seem, you know, a little more extreme than maybe we were expecting. I, I think, you know, we've 
we've kind of alluded to expecting the Blue Jays to have some mentors on the roster, and it it kind of looks like that's not really a priority for them at the moment. Is it fair to say that's that's something we didn't see coming? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the the whole concept of veteran leadership. I mean, especially when you consider the way they're it sounds like trying to get Russell Martin out the door at the same time as well. There's going to be a really, really young team. And I guess that's what they decided they want. They want to see the kids play and they figure the coaches can handle the rest of it. And I mean, again, it comes down to um, is, is also Tulowitzki's lack of flexibility part of the problem. His I've, I've come in as a shortstop. I'm going out as a shortstop. If I can't, you know, if I can't, I'm packing my bags. It is maybe that, you know, driving this decision sooner rather than later. If if they think there's kind of something up in the air about him playing shortstop. Well, I wonder if if the Jays, who have a very kind of intimate knowledge of Tulo's medicals, are just for whatever reason a lot more skeptical about his ability to actually get back on the field. Um, I know Josh, you were talking about how they wanted to release him now to give him a chance to find another job, but part of me thinks that they did this because they they kind of think very pessimistically on his outlook in terms of being able to get back on the field, um, given he missed so much time, or they know something we don't? Well, I don't think it would happen now if that were the case. I think if there was no real chance of him playing again, and they didn't need the 40-man spot yet because they had two open spots, and there was no chance they were going to take two players in their Rule 5. So they did it, I think, now because they don't have that. I mean, look, I could be completely wrong, and he could be done, but the timing just makes it that like that would be very strange to me right we shall see uh if anyone goes around um you know sniffing around tulo's neck of the woods and asking him to play shortstop for them and i would think we oh. would know that sooner rather than later although apparently he's willing to change positions elsewhere i don't know what that's all about his agent said that so who knows you know looks like he's just only willing to play shortstop for toronto <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think that's probably agent speak for I need to actually have a conversation with people before before I close that door. Yeah, but <laughs> it is a, sad, though, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The whole Tulo era is is kind of the the most bittersweet acquisition I've ever seen the Jays make because he was here and he did what we hoped he would do in the very short term of those first two years. And the rest of it has been just basically weeping for the the shell of what Tulo once was. I think it is important to remember, though, even kind of Tulowitzki in a reduced capacity was still a pretty decent player. I mean, if you look at him in 2016, you look at kind of his his slash line, that's that's like peak Brandon Crawford. And Tulo was so good that even as he starts to decline, he's still, you know, a pretty good league average shortstop who can hit a little bit and can still play defense. Like the fact that Tulo can decline, be in decline and still be a three win player, I think really does speak to just how good he was in his peak. And now Nick is exactly saying why I keep picking Troy Tulowitzki as a stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, but just, it was interesting Al, when this news happened, which is a bombshell, but no one expected it. Right. And then just the outpouring of, like remembering how good he was, even for this team. Like, look, his numbers were never Troy Tulowitzki when he was a Blue Jay, but he had some huge moments in the postseason and getting the team into the postseason, which were, you know, they sort of etched themselves in Blue Jays lore, even if the Blue Jays never actually won the World Series out of them. Yeah. 
it was exciting. I mean, we hadn't got a player of that caliber. Uh, well, I guess until the offseason earlier when they. Yeah, they it's it. really recent. <laughs> but, but, you know, that, that was the first era. Tula was part of the first era of Blue Jays baseball in a long time where there were legitimate stars in, in Toronto. And I think that, that means a lot. But where it mattered what those stars did and how they performed. That's yeah, the difference, exactly. right? Yeah. You, you had, this you could have Roger all Halliday and Delgado. Yeah. yeah. So thanks for all the memories, Tulo. Even though it was a, not the way the whole thing would have played out. Um, it certainly, yeah. I mean, it was an exciting time and he was an exciting acquisition. And, and I, I don't want to take anything away from his tenure, but it would be really nice if he could have got, you know, back on the field last season. So we knew what we really were giving up. And hopefully he goes to the NL if he keeps playing because I don't want to have to root against him. Indeed. All right. Rule 5 draft. The Rule 5 draft is uh, an opportunity for teams to take uh, unprotected players, uh, promise to keep them on the Major League roster if they're going to keep them uh, for a whole season, and uh, take a gamble. Uh, the rest of the intricacies of it, I'll be honest, I still don't 100% understand, except that we ended up <laughs> somehow getting Joe Biagini and Glenn Sparkman out of it, and one of those things worked out better than the other. <laughs> what happened yeah. this year, Josh? Well, we'll get to the players that Jay's lost in a minute, but they shocked a lot of people because they, they took a pitcher named Elvis Luciano or Luciano. I don't actually know the pronunciation. I assume it's Luciano, but that in itself means nothing. But he's 18, <laughs> and, <laughs> and he hasn't pitched above rookie ball. And the reason they're only been allowed to take this 18-year-old is because he had a voided contract initially because of some – he failed a physical when he was 16 or something like that. But somehow there's some loophole that that creates by having a voided contract that you're eligible for the Rule 5 at this point, which – okay. <laughs> hey, I said I didn't understand the regular rules. Now you're getting into some fancy exceptions, so I'm not going <laughs> to argue with you. Um, so they are touting it as if they really – think they can keep him on the major league roster at least for for a real go uh at being maybe a starting pitcher but being being at the very least a major league pitcher at this point this seems wildly optimistic to me although he is named elvis which gets him bonus points in my in my world um what do you think of the move nick um i don't know a lot about you know 18 year olds uh who are in the royal system but uh, you know, it looks like he throws kind of hard, you know, he can touch the mid nineties. Uh, but like you guys, I think it feels like quite a long shot that he's going to be able to stick on the major league roster all season. So it, it leaves me scratching my head a little bit. Well, okay. So if this, if the Jays were a contending team, I totally agree. They're not. And you know, arms, I, I think it's a lot easier for a pitcher to come and throw in the bullpen you know, throw 30 innings in relief and then get sent back down to the minors through the option system for the next two or three years to rebuild himself back up when your team sucks. And look, let's be honest, the Jays are not going to be very good this year. And this ball, especially when we're going to get to some of the moves that the rest of the division is making. So I think that there's a chance. I mean, we saw this with Roberto Osuna, who was an exceptional, you know, pitcher. His command was off the charts for his age, which Luciano does not have that. But stuff still plays at the big league level in a relief role. And I think that if they're careful with the usage of him and if they get enough other arms that they can, I don't want to say you can count on because you never count on relievers, but count on them more than others. 
then they could hide him enough that this could potentially work. I like I still agree that the odds are against it because you know he was in rookie ball. But I understand it. I'd be a lot more skeptical if he was a position player and they were doing this. All right. So the rule right. five draft giveth and the rule five draft taketh away. What does it taketh away from us? Well, two pitchers. <laughs> <laughs> was any of them left handed? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Travis Bergen is the is the lefty, and uh, Jordan Romano was the right-handed pitcher, both in AA last year. Romano got a brief stint to AAA, but yeah, it, they were surprise-ish omissions from the 40-man roster. I've heard Romano's name, which is, tells you something about the fact that he's he's been around or he's been noticeable for a while, because I hardly ever hear any names. <laughs> That's because he's from <laughs> Toronto. That's it. Well, well, Markham, close enough to Toronto, but... I think that the bigger loss is Bergen, for sure. Romano is a righty who throws in the mid-90s and has a good slider, which, if that sounds like every other relief pitcher, (laughs) (laughs) there's a reason for that. But one of the interesting things about Bergen, he's a lefty, and he's he had Tommy John. He hadn't really been been healthy up until this year, and he dominated the minor leagues. And the Jays don't really have any lefties in their roster. I mean, look, they've got... Tim Meza, who, you know, I love Tim Meza, but he's limited. And they released Jose Fernandez, or they waived him, and he got picked up by the Tigers. So I thought for sure that meant they were going to add Bergen, who struck out 74 batters in 56 innings with a 0.95 ERA. And they didn't, and he got selected. So I, I was a little puzzled by that, but, you know, we'll have to see what they do. It's, it's a loss, though. All righty. Uh, does that cover everything you wanted to say about the Rule 5? That's all I have on the bullet points. Um, which makes me move on to Randall <laughs> Grichuk. I love reading my bullet points and trying to figure out what I was talking about earlier. One second. Just before we get to Grichuk, <laughs> just slow it up just a little bit. It, it, the Jays at least didn't lose anyone else, which was potentially a thing like Jackson McClellan throws a hundred miles an hour. They didn't lose Forrest wall. Whose you know, name would have made Greg cry if they lost. I know. <laughs> and, and so while it sucks to lose two prospects in the rule five, both of whom could potentially stick because they went to teams that aren't very good either. And the relievers, they're relievers and relievers are replaceable. Indeed. So I will move on to Randall Grichuk now. Um, Randall Grichuk, slow start, kind of a big finish. Um, I, I think a lot of Blue Jay fans are, are wondering if, if, uh, he is the center fielder, if, if Kevin Pilar is out, but you are having some thoughts, Nick, that maybe there's, uh, not as much to Gr- Randall Grichuk as meets the eye. Oh, I was, uh, I was talking to Josh off air about it. And I think if you just look at what's happened kind of around baseball with, you know, Billy Hamilton being non-tendered with Adam Duvall, who has a very, very similar profile to Randall Grichik, you know, becoming a fourth outfielder in Atlanta. I, I just wonder if there's not a lot of demand or value, at least amongst baseball's better teams in, in an outfielder like Randall Grichik. Um, and I know We've kind of dreamt on his exit velocity and his kind of his batted ball data. But I mean, if you look at him, he's been really consistent over the last three seasons. You know, his average has been right around 245. He's hit, you know, between 22 and 28 homers. He's played around 130 games each year. Um, I just think he might be kind of a, 
a first division fourth outfielder and a and a second division starter. Uh, and and this reason I want to have this discussion. I think it depends what version of Randall Grichuk you are getting because the one who he, who he was last year as a as an outfielder as a corner outfielder he is pretty much Adam Duvall. The difference is that Grichuk can play center field, and if you can play center field with a 500 slugging percentage, it doesn't. That I think that puts you in first division starter if they have good corner outfielders situation. I think because. You know, the, the power bat who doesn't get on base is very common in the corner outfield, but it's not really that common in center. Do you do you think, though, that like Grichik is a center fielder? I think he can fake it in center field. And, you know, if somebody goes down, I think you can feel comfortable moving him there for 20 games. But I don't know if he's a, a center fielder for 130, 150 games, is he? Well, he wasn't last year, but no Blue Jays outfielders were any good last year. And we talked about that with Tim Leeper and all that. But, I mean, he's a plus 9 or plus 12 DRS center fielder for his career career in 180 games there. Right. And, and by StatCast, he was actually better than Kevin Pillar when it came to the outs above average statistic. And and actually, when they introduced the, uh, the catch rate statistic, they had a video which compared Kevin Pillar making a crazy diving catch – in the postseason against Cleveland to a ball that Randall Grichuk caught standing up in St. Louis. Uh, and just for people yeah. who don't know the context, that's a ball hit at the same exit velocity with a similar hang time, which is to say Pilar made it look more spectacular because his read or his range was not as good as Grichuk's, which is what you want, right? Right. Yeah, and also it also includes the, the distance that they had to go to catch the ball and all that, right? So, so I think that if he rebounds defensively, which and that's an if for sure, because we don't really know what happened, but I think the changing coaches could have that. But if he does rebound defensively and is takes over role as a center fielder, then he has that upside. But otherwise, I agree with you, Nick. Yeah, and I guess ultimately, then my suggestion would be to put him in center field so he can kind of establish himself as as a valuable player. Because um, you know, right now it feels like he's maybe more of a placeholder than you know, the right fielder of the future or, or anything like that. I don't but, think you're going to get any argument on this podcast about replacing Kevin Pillar with that <laughs> good in center field. I was going to make the most sarcastic, facetious sounding argument, but you've headed me off. Um, <laughs> you, you guys don't like infield fly balls? <laughs> well, I did when Marco Estrada was pitching. I don't like yeah. them otherwise. So you were speaking earlier, Josh, about how the Jays, A, are not going to be particularly great, and B, even less great in comparison with the rest of the division. So I guess we'll start with the Rays, because the Rays made the biggest quote-unquote splash um, by actually doing something they hardly ever do, uh, signing free agent. <laughs> how did they make yeah. that mistake? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's Maybe they got confused. <laughs> so one of the weird things that happened with the Rays and with their off-season dealings and their dealings last season. Entering this off-season, they had one player under a guaranteed contract, and it was Kevin Kiermaier, who was making like five, six million or seven million or something like that. After signing Charlie Morton to a two-year thirty million dollar deal, if they, if it's fifteen a year, they're still projected, even with their arbitrations, to be paying in around the forty-five million dollar payroll range. And this is a team that was above 500 last year, we might add. They won 90 games. <laughs> I hear that, and I do wonder what the heck the Jays are doing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. It's just 
just devil it's Tampa devil magic. I don't care if they drop the devil from the name. It's still it's crazy this the the way that they just somehow pull things off. Now the opener I think was a big part of their success which is going to be adopted around the league but uh they're going to be good. <laughs> uh and yeah and and obviously if they want to sign a guy for 30, you know, 15 million dollars a year, it really has no uh, long-term impact on their payroll doesn't even have a short-term impact on their payroll because any major league team um with forget about tickets just strictly on tv revenue alone is in the 45 million dollars in revenue range i'm pretty sure oh yeah i mean last year their payroll was around 70 million so they're still 25 million dollars away from that and they added yandy diaz today they threw some they threw five million dollars into the trade the Rays paid money in a trade well, they spent all of last year trying to shim uh, like every half million dollars out of every trade they could to reduce pay. It's, they're a weird team, but they're a good team. So I'm not going to make fun of them. I'm just going to call them weird. Um, the Red Sox, <laughs> uh, for their part, re-signed Nathan Eovaldi, formerly of Ball So Straight University, um, <laughs> who is much better at, at getting people out than he used to be. Because he stopped throwing the ball so straight. I know. <laughs> that was the formerly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, four years for him. How much per year, or how much average? Uh, I believe it was seventeen million dollars a year. You know what used to be an average contract. I guess that's good. Um, and then uh, Brian Cashman keeps getting asked questions about Bryce Harper and Manny Machado because why wouldn't he? Uh, because we think that the Yankees have all that money, and he's been a bit shy about the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that a little bit, right? But, I mean, it sounds like they don't really want Harper, and I get that. I mean, where are they going to put him? You can't do four outfielders all the time? That's just like a temporary... <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a shift thing. You know what? We haven't even got banning shifts on the on the list for this <laughs> week. That's how much happened this week. Uh, do do you have uh, Nick a a destination for Bryce Harper in mind other than you don't want it to be the AL East? <laughs> yes, I don't want it to be the AL East for sure, but um I think it would be fun just as a baseball fan to see him go to Philly. Yes. Um yeah, I I'd, I'd kind of like that from from just a, a fan's perspective. But uh yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, a lot of the the heavy hitters seem to be out on Machado and Harper. So, it'll be kind of a a fun couple of weeks to see where they end up. Yeah. Now, of course, the real true fun outcome for Bryce Harper would be Colorado. We've discussed this oh. before. All power <laughs> yes. should go to Colorado. That but would be fun. The sad thing about the Yankees' moves is that they brought back Jay Happ. Mm. I want to be able to root for Happ. Yeah, we have to actively root against <laughs> yeah. him every time we see him now. Even if he's not playing the Jays, we have to be like, no, Happ. And they gave him three years, correct? Well, two years with a vesting option, which apparently is. He needs to throw 165 innings or make 27 starts in 2020. Well, we did predict he was looking for that third year, and there was no way in heck that the Blue Jays were going to give it to him. And lo and behold, <laughs> he got it from the Yankees, or more or less got it from the Yankees. Yeah. The uh, the, the owners of the fully functional Death Star, <laughs> Brian Cashman. Actual quote from Brian Cashman. Finally acknowledging that the evil empire thing is real, not just our imagination. <laughs> now they can, they can play the Imperial March when they win instead of that uh, start spreading the news. 
New York, New York. Um, that's probably not going to happen. I think I, y'all don't, don't take that one to the bank. Uh, you also would like to, would you like to highlight Ross Atkins comments on Bo Bichette? Yeah, they're really funny. Were you aware so, of this one, Nick? Uh, is this where I said he thinks he'd benefit from a full year at AAA? Well, mm. uh, yes, but that's not what I was, that's not the part of the quote that I wanted to, to, uh, to highlight. So yes, he, he um, Scott Mitchell of, of TSN asked him about where, Bichette stands on the depth chart today because, you know, Tulowitzki's gone. And Ross Atkins said, quote, in Bo Bichette's case, as it relates to AAA for a full season, I think that's very likely that he would benefit greatly from that. Here's the interesting part. But we would love for him to force our hand. Does that sound familiar to either of you guys about oh another prospect they might have had? Do not remind me, Josh. <laughs> Do not remind me. Um, like, begins if, with a V... If, yeah, yeah, if Vlad couldn't force their hand, <laughs> what does Bo have to do? Yeah, Vladimir Guerrero destroyed the minor leagues and was named the number one prospect on every single list and couldn't even swing a September call-up. So I think apparently Bo Bichette has to invent a new way to hit the baseball and a new way to catch it, and maybe he'll get the call-up. <laughs> now, I should point out there is one difference that, and we talked about this before, Bobachet will need to be added to the 40 man in the offseason. So if the plan if they don't need to hold him down for an extra year for service time, they won't lose a player like they would have by adding him earlier. Like they would have if they'd added Vlad, that is. All right. Well, we can at least hope for a little visibility on Bobachet. I mean, I hope he has a very good year as well. And uh, he does yeah. force their hand. Because there's always that possibility is, is that he um does not attack triple a like uh, we're all imagining he will in our mind's eye all right uh my segues are horrible so i'm just gonna say we're gonna go to shy davidi of sportsnet because he was at the winter meetings um possibly having mike wilner empty out his mini bar not sure if that was uh something i imagined and uh we're gonna talk to him about everything that went down from the front row seat And we are pleased to announce the return of guest Shai Davidi from Sportsnet. Shai, welcome from, uh, I guess, right from lovely Las Vegas. Yeah, I'm still at the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino getting ready to go home. And after a pretty interesting and somewhat eventful few days here. I'm sure a couple more hands of blackjack and you'll have the whole trip paid for. Or no ticket home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, I... Uh, but I let it ride last night, guys, and I uh, I won three dollars on the blackjack table. Whoa! So that was a good. Ew. Yeah, I know, I know. So everything everything's covered. Everything's good. You can now get one Excellent. ice cube out of the mini bar. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All right, well, we're gonna shift to baseball. Um, I guess the big the big splash that the Jays made was not in signing someone; it was in releasing someone. We I just wanted to get what what was it like, sort of on the the, the floor and in the hotel when. Uh, it was announced that Tulo was, was going to be released to be a free agent. Well, I, I can't say that everyone was, uh, or at least I'll speak for myself, because it was entirely shocked. You know, uh, I mean, when Ross Atkins made his comments the week before the winter meeting, saying that they just can't envision him being, you know, an above average shortstop for 140 games uh, moving forward, uh, calling that unlikely, you got the sense that the Blue Jays were. Not necessarily, you know, cutting bait with them, but yeah, they 
almost given up on, on what he could contribute. And if he's not going to be, you know, an, an elite level performer, then he's just taking away playing time from the young players that are going to be part of the future. And, you know, if the, if the horizon for him was a little bit different, if there was four years of control instead of two years control, the age was different, then obviously things don't play out that way. Uh, but it really sent out a buzz. You know, there were a lot of jaws that dropped uh, here. But I don't think that we should have necessarily been surprised because I think this was a distinct possibility. I think it just happened maybe a bit sooner than we might have expected. Did you get the sense that other teams were surprised by this? Well, I, I mean, I heard from a few teams that were pretty surprised by it. So uh, <laughs> I, th- I think what happens is like, you know, it's such a big ticket, right? I mean, we're talking $38 million that the Blue Jays are, are, are cutting bait on. And also, as much as, you know, Blue Jays fans have grown frustrated waiting for him to return over the past couple of years, I mean, Troy Tulowitzki is still Troy Tulowitzki and incredibly respected and admired within the industry. Uh, and a guy who, when he came to the Blue Jays, was very much on a Hall of Fame track uh, in his career. So I think because of that, it, it was, a surprise move for a lot of people. Uh, but again, you know, the, the, the landscape here in Toronto, the way things set up, you know, it, it was hard to see how Tula with you was going to fit the puzzle, uh, especially if the Blue Jays didn't think he could be a regular player for them. Yeah. Yeah. That, that certainly makes sense. Uh, so shifting to, I guess the rest of what happened or didn't happen. I mean, they didn't do very much, obviously. Going into these meetings, did you really expect the Jays to be all that active? Uh, I didn't necessarily expect them to get a lot done. I thought they might, if the pitching market started to move, get something done. I thought because uh, you know there was Patrick Corbin uh, agreement, and then there was Nathan Eovaldi agreement before the meeting started. I thought that might kickstart a few things and lead to some momentum, and maybe they could have ended up with a deal. Uh, but... I mean, this is what we've seen from the winter meetings the past couple of years. You know, it's, everyone's just doing things later and later. There's a lot of gamesmanship. Uh, and I think from a Blue Jays perspective, they were always going to be in a position where they were trying to sort of wake guys out and trying to get guys down to their price. And, you know, it's an approach that a lot of teams have used in recent years, and it's work uh, because, you know, they're just people teams aren't just signing play just aren't signing players anymore for whatever reason uh or at least not doing it early and uh and i i figured that the blue jays would probably employ that approach as well and given that approach and that you know general managers are constantly connected now with texting and the internet do you get the sense that the winter meetings have sort of lost their i don't know i want to say they lost their need but at least some of their luster and some of the the, the fact that there's some of the meaning of them Oh, totally. And it's kind of funny if, if you kind of think about the, his, the history of the winter meetings. I mean, it was actually a minor league event because there's really a lot of tradesmen uh, who come here. And, uh, there's a lot of products that get sold for the minor leagues and just businesses that connect in that way. There's a job fair. Uh, and then the major league, major league kind of attached themselves to it and said, hey, let's get together and we'll try to do our business here. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like the the days we talked to, we talked about this with a lot of people, uh, Ben Nichols and Smith and I, the past few days. Uh, a lot of a lot of people were making jokes about uh, how nobody was making deals on cocktail napkins these days uh, at the bar at 2 a.m. Uh, but that's the way it used to be, and and 
because now teams are just texting and most, most general managers are being disciplined and they're not hanging out at the bar. They're working and getting good nights of sleep and all these things that are, are not akin to what the winter meetings were. Uh, they really lost their luster. And I thought that one of the more, most intriguing things to, to come out of these meetings was a suggestion by Dave Dombrowski that there should be some sort of signing deadline so that the offseason stops. And yeah, everybody's working towards a deadline. And it, it's sort of ridiculous for front offices and, and, every, and players and agents and all this stuff to just have the whole business of the offseason just drag on forever. I think a lot of a lot of executives and agents I talked to here were kind of looking longingly at the NHL model, where you know July first hits, everybody signs within two three days, and then they're drunk at the cottage for two months. And it's pretty appealing to a lot of people in baseball. So uh, I I think it's, it's it's more than fair to say that the winter meetings have lost their luster, and uh, it's really something baseball I think needs to wrestle with in terms of how the offseason business gets done. I think that's a really interesting concept of, of having a, you know, a deadline for everyone to, uh, to do something by. If, I don't know how you enforce it, but it, it is an interesting concept because, uh, I mean, we did get a bunch of language like the Jays were trying to do something. And, and maybe if there was a deadline hanging over their head, something would have gotten done at the meetings. Do you have any idea of who this mystery player that they've been or players maybe in trade that they've, they've been trying to work with? Or is, is Atkins and, and Shapiro just been been uh throwing hints that that haven't led anywhere well i mean i think they're they've been pretty tight-lipped i mean we've talked to a handful of people i mean they've talked to the agents for pretty much everybody and you know the age a few agents they spoke with are like you know the blue jays they keep saying they're interested and they're staying engaged but they are sort of getting down to the brass tacks and, and really trying to hammer things out so, you know, for whoever it is that they're, they're really targeting, whoever are the top guys on their, on their press list, uh, I mean, they haven't come down. I thought it was intriguing when uh, yesterday Atkins said that uh, the Tanner Rourke trade, uh, the Morton signing uh, had kind of were interesting names uh, that were impacting the market they were in. And so, you know, it kind of gives you an indication of the type of pitcher that they they're, they're talking about internally, about trying to add. Um, and I do think there's also this, this parallel track that's going on where they're, they're listening to see if they can, uh, you know, extract some, some value out of Stroman and Sanchez through the trade market right now. Uh, and so, so they've got these two things going and neither one of them is, is, is reached fruition yet. And so you've got this ongoing sort of stasis where they have all these possibilities that are open right now. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, sorry about that. I mean, that, that that certainly will make things a little more confusing for them going forward. One thing that we've seen sort of has been a big focus of the early part of this offseason is teams dumping salary. You know, the Indians are doing it. The, the Mariners did it. You know, and the Dodgers are apparently trying to do it. Do you get any sense that what this team's payroll situation is going to be and whether they can potentially absorb some of those deals as they have in the past in order to, say, buy a prospect? Yeah, they, they certainly, I mean, they have the flexibility. I mean, even, you know, I think people automatically think, oh, it's Tulowitzki, the release, that's going to impact their payroll. But that money was already on the books, so it, it's sort of irrelevant uh, from their perspective. <laughs> the, the flip side to that is that I, I do think because the Blue Jays are going to have this flexibility, you know, Russell Martin's going to be off the books, Kendrick Morales is going to be off the books, 
uh, after next year, Troy Tulowitzki is going to be off the books. I mean, they, the only commitment in salary guarantees that they have beyond that is Lourdes Gurriel Jr. And, and that's a very minimal commitment. And I think that payroll flexibility is really important to them. And I, I think if they had their druthers, what they want to do is, you know, only spend money on a piece that they think is going to time with their core or be part of their core. Uh, in the, in, you know, the, sort of the 20, 2020, 2021, 2022 phase. And then save that flexibility for when the team's starting to be competitive so that you're adding, you know, veteran pieces who are sort of in a peak period and ready to hit the ground running as opposed to guys who may be starting to decline by the time the rest of the roster is ready. So, you know, it's a long answer. Uh, I, I apologize for that to, uh, to the question. But I do think that they can. They're in a position to do that. But I think the circumstances have to be careful. Is I think they, the payroll flexibility is something they really wanted to get and sort of worked the past few years to ensure they don't, uh, don't tie themselves into. And I think they're going to be very judicious from, from here on forward in terms of how they allocate uh, a commitment. So on that vein, we have a quote from our favorite player agent, uh, Scott Boris. From, uh, I believe, your article. Um, he, he was talking about uh, the context of, of having a competitive team. Uh, he says, the Canadian fans understand mm-hmm. they want a respectful team, they want talent, and I don't blame them. My point is, in what business do you lose 30% of your fans and not look at and say, we are, treat- are we treating this business and the investment in this business correctly? So, basically, uh, I think Boris is saying, and, and I, I, I can see his argument here, is... Um, you know, you, you have a responsibility to make money, and the way you make money with this team is to remain competitive and not, not punt a couple of years um, because that, that, that's mismanagement. Um, do you think he's, he's got a point? I, I, obviously, the, whether uh, Rogers cares about that point or not is a different matter entirely. Well, I mean, I, I think first we should note uh, how noble and altruistic Boris is in, uh, in his comments and <laughs> when, when he offers that up, um, look, look, I do think there's a point there. And I think the scourge of tanking and the way that the CBA has structured the system, particularly when it comes to draft pools, which makes, you know, the, the you know, picking one, one or, or even two, three, so much more advantageous over the other teams, uh, it essentially incentivizes losing. I think that's a problem. You know, I mean, it's really not good to have this uh, this as a as a real strategy, and and it works, and that's why other teams are doing it. The flip side to that, I would say, the Blue Jays, uh, you know, in part because they were able to have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in their system, have embarked on this this sort of reset which is not the full tank. You know, they're not going to lose the hundred something games. You know, we think, uh, you know, they're not uh, going to bottom out for two, three seasons and be completely dreadful and unwatchable. I mean, it, theoretically, and we hope, at least that's their plan. And so, you know, can they spend more right now? I think that's possible. And, and I think it's interesting that they're going to meet with uh, Kikuchi next month when, uh, or later this month, when uh, he meets with uh, different interested clubs in Los Angeles at the Boris Corp offices. I think that would be a type of spend that would show a commitment from the Blue Jays and the fan base that would be rewarding. But I think that where the Blue Jays are at, like 
you know, you're young now, you don't have payroll commitments, you know, you can't spend money that's not going to, to make sense. So I do think the, the Blue Jays are going to have a sizable drop in payroll this season. They're going to go from, you know, the 160-ish where, I mean, they started above 160. I'm not sure exactly where they ended up with all the trades. I think it's the 150 somewhere to, I'm guessing, 120, 130, you know, with uh, arbitration projections and guarantees and, and a bit of money for some zero to, to three service time players. They have about $100 million on the books right now, so it all depends on how much they spend on pitching this winter. Uh, but I, I do think that, that, that it's a challenge. You can spend bad money, and there's not a lot of point in spending bad money if you're not going to get good impact on it. And so if, I think if, if it comes to you know, a longer-term piece, if there's an opportunity there, that's a spend the Blue Jays should make. You know, Kikuchi is, is young enough that he could be still a, a contributing pitcher when this team's theoretically ready to compete in 2020, 2021. Um, and that's the, that's the type of opportunity I think the Blue Jays need to be pursuing not necessarily, you know, the veteran guy who, who isn't going to be around when, when the team is good again. There's some food for thought, definitely. Well, thank you very much for dropping by uh, bef- and, uh, and stopping in with us before you have to catch your flight out of uh, Las Vegas. Um, certainly, everyone can find you on Twitter at ChaiDVD and naturally at Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca. You don't have another book yeah, coming thanks, out, do you? Guys. No, no, no books. No books this year, thankfully. Ready um, to plug the book. Yeah, my sanity. <laughs> yeah, no. The, but uh, you know, Blue Jays Big Fifty is still out there, so you know, for fans wanting to remember some better times. All right, uh, makes a great Christmas yeah, gift. You, you I've heard that. There you go. All right, thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. And that was a good time with Shy. As always, nice to have him back. It's been it's been a while, so uh, always good to have a familiar voice back on. Uh, which means we can transition immediately from that to the familiar questions segment, where you pick our brains. Time now to hear from our listeners. That just seems silly. Here are the rules: first I ask a question, then you ask a question. Now, how does that sound, sweetheart? Could you repeat the question, please? All right. Uh, You know what? Despite everything that happened this week, we we have a limited amount of brain picking going on. But I I will let uh, I will let you start, Josh, with a question asker. Who who do you have? Okay, this comes from Brian Donnelly at Brian Donnelly Eight. We've now seen two examples of the relationship between star player and Jay's management sour. Do you think these are isolated or maybe something more? Do you think it might make it harder to attract free agents, or is it just business and everyone knows it? Mm. Nick, I'll I assume you. that he, I think he's talking about Donaldson and Tulo, but I don't think mm-hmm. Tulo really is an example of this. Yeah, that's tough to say. I mean, we haven't had the thank you letter from Tulo yet, <laughs> or lack thereof. Uh, what do no, you think? No, but his Nick? agent. But, well, sorry, I didn't mind. Go ahead, Nick. No, I I don't want to. I don't want to kind of kick his ass on the way out the door. But I, I think with Donaldson, even if you look at his time in Toronto, he seemed to be a, a player who kind of gotten a lot of different confrontations with other teams throughout the league. So I think maybe that 
in the case of Donaldson, it is a little bit more of he's just a fiery personality, kind of seems to wear his heart on his sleeve. I think maybe, you know, if I was someone else in baseball, I, I'd probably take it with a grain of salt in, in the sense that this is not the first or last time he's kind of been, you know, visibly and vocally upset with somebody. And I think I agree with Josh that in the in the Tulo case, we don't necessarily know that uh, their relationship has soured. Uh, and they may have, like Josh was saying earlier, done this so Tulo could get a job. Uh, and that's what his agent said. That's what I was going to say. Like, yeah. Chilowski's agent came out and thanked the Blue Jays for doing this the way that they did. So I don't think that was anything animosity. I think it was just there. he wasn't a fit and everybody knew it. I, I think in the overall, the biggest obstacle to um, Blue Jays keeping or getting players is probably the fact that it's a foreign country and the team is in Canada, strange land of maple syrup than anything with the team specifically itself. That always seems to be the impression I get when, when players talk about coming here. Yeah. Right. Ross Atkins seems to, to prioritize player development to the point you would think that, um, that those relationships would be valuable to him and they'd be ones he'd take seriously and at least try to, have at a really high level all right. all right question two uh is from a familiar face Alicia Wisniewski <laughs> asks <laughs> with all the uniform color and logo selections what combination of uniform and logo would you like to bring back possibly not permanently but you know as a as a special uniform we do these every year is there one um Josh that uh you you are missing out of the mix yep uh, I'd like to see a steroid appreciation day where they bring back <laughs> the tea with the muscly bird. I, I don't know that that's an event you can put on the billboard, but uh, <laughs> everybody would know what the what the muscly bird was about. Um, <laughs> Fine. How about the the bygone era appreciation day? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Nick? Um. Yeah, well, I think the the kind of standard answer, but I think the right answer is is kind of the powder blues. Uh, if you look at some of the other teams that have kind of reintroduced the powder blues, like the Phillies or or the Royals, I think they look great. I think the Jays ones looked great, and uh, yeah, I think you know you you roll those out once a week. Nobody's gonna have any complaints. I think I don't know if it needs to be once a week, but I think the powder blues are the way to go. But it has to be a pullover, a V neck pullover. Otherwise, the vibe is wrong. And, yeah, uh, yeah, the one that they had in the, when they first started. Yeah, yeah, you can't just, just slap powder blue on the existing uniform style. You got to go real retro. Yep, no buttons. Yep. <laughs> because <laughs> I want to see how annoyed modern players can be at that collar. Oh, Chris Sale's not going to like it. Chris <laughs> Sale's not going to like it one bit. <laughs> right, let's trade for yeah. Chris Sale for one week. Yeah. Um, all right, last question from Brian at, oh, he's changed it, BJ Arsenault 84 uh what do you what would you do to make the league more equal between teams realignment salary cap shoot the yankees and red sox into the middle of the sun Ooh, that's an attractive idea <laughs> nick i'll let you have that one first uh one interesting idea i read about in a book called field of schemes which is about publicly financing sports stadiums uh they suggested that Increasing the amount of teams in big markets is a good way to develop parity. So their argument is teams like the Yankees and Red Sox make so much money because really there should be two or three teams in Boston and three or four teams in like the greater New York area. And that's a good way to kind of even the playing field. So uh, 
because I assume that the people that wrote that book are smarter than me, I'm going to go with that as the idea to make the league more fair. Mm, the dilute the fan base idea. Um, for my part, I am still going to beat the balance the schedule drum until I die. Yep. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's it. And also get rid of these goddamn competitive balance draft picks. They're the worst. But St. Louis How, is so hard done by. Like, <laughs> exactly. How do you guys feel about trading draft picks? That's that's another solution that I know some people like to talk about as as a way to make parity happen. I don't think that'll do that much. I think that it'll just tr- it'll increase trades, I think, because people will be able to trade players at the deadline for a draft pick as opposed to for insert prospect here. And I, I'm all for it. I'm for it, but I think it will be less effective a strategy than the other leagues due to the long development time that we know exists in baseball. So, right. yeah. a lot of, you know, in, in basketball, you might be trading for a guy for two years from now. That's that's a or whole lot year. different. Yeah, or next year even. Yeah, it, yeah it's just not happening in baseball. So it, it does. It's not as, as simple as your, your typical basketball or hockey fan thinks it might be, but it certainly wouldn't hurt because they are assets. Yeah. Why can't you? Trade yeah, I just them? think it would make more trades. I don't think it would affect parity very much. Yeah. All right, cool. Those were the questions. Thank you for submitting them. Uh, you can submit more next week. We'll let you know. Or two weeks from now. Uh, I am going to now send us on over to uh, Bennett Brower, who is a contributor at uh, BP Toronto and Baseball Prospectus. And, uh, we're and a talk- former minor league general manager. Indeed, which is why we're going to talk to him about the minor league general meetings, which uh, the minor league winter meetings, which you may not have even known existed as separate from the major league ones. Uh, it was pretty cool. We'll be right back. And we are happy to be joined by Bennett Brower of Baseball Prospectus. Bennett, we are brought you on to talk about the minor leagues. How are you doing tonight? I am super. Thank you so much for having me, guys. A pleasure. A pleasure. Josh, of course, is here as well to help me uh, uh, ask the questions. Uh, and uh, I guess we get right to it. We were just at, or tuned into, I should say, not at, I couldn't afford to be at the winter meetings. Um, <laughs> we were tuned into the, the MLB winter meetings, which are all about players getting traded and uh, free agents and everything else. But um, you had an article at Baseball Prospectus uh, that we wanted to talk about because there is a whole minor league uh, winter meetings that goes on that isn't quite the same as the major league winter meetings, even though it's happening um, in the same city. What, what is that event all about? Just, just to bring people up to speed. Well, firstly, if you're going to ever get the time or budget to go to the winter meetings, definitely go the next time it's in Vegas. And it's it's it, winter meetings are in itself pretty ostentatious and pretty kind of glamorous. But in Vegas, it's just you add the city's glamour with the winter meetings. And it's just it's it's amazing. Like it really is like two worlds colliding. Um but that's your question. The minor league winter meetings are kind of the economic driver of the winter meetings. Obviously, um, the major league gets you know ninety nine percent of the media attention. It's a very they've done a very good job of creating the atmosphere of where free agent signings happen, and all the agents and GMs are kind of perfectly positioned um, in the main hall, and 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 it's a it's it's a great trade fodder. But for the miners, this is really where trade this is really where trade shows happen and all the teams um all the tra- other teams convene for league meetings they convene for a massive trade show where you can buy 
anything and everything that all minor league teams need to buy, ranging from hot dogs to hot dog wrappers to seats to video boards uh, to to mascots. I mean, it really is every single thing that a team spends money on. It's all there. And it's sort of a beautiful display of capitalism and a beautiful display of the industry because you've been able to really see how much the industry has grown by in these massive hotels uh, that they that they host these winter meetings at. There's only a few hotels in the country that are able to actually host it, the winter meetings. Like there's tens of thousands of people involved. So it's really, it's really uh, the winter meetings for me at least is really the economic drivers. It's on the minor league side. Like it's really to be able to show just how big the industry is. And it's interesting you mentioned that because you know when we think of the winter meetings, it's just a few executives from clubs and reporters and that's it. Whereas we're actually talking about tens of thousands of people. Right. And that's it. It's it's not it's not as sexy, so to speak, for the baseball world because um, one thing I've been you know trying to do is to shed light on you know the last two years is is what really happens in a minor league front office because people don't really know and the people that are ardent baseball fans don't really know. They think that they're almost helping the the uh, baseball operations with um, with transactions and with sort of minor league operations, which is which couldn't be really further from the truth. And um, many people don't know what happens at the winter meetings, and it's and it's. It's really exciting. People look forward to it all year. It's, a, it's almost a celebration of the game as much as it is a place to see old friends, this place to actually get some real business done. And I know that this, this celebration aspect and you know, seeing all these people, you, in your piece, you talked about so things, funny things that were being put in you know, your team meetings and your scheduling notes. But your first time going, you were, you were an intern, I believe. Yeah. What were you expecting and what actually happened? Were they the same or did it completely blow your mind the way they your piece blow ours. <laughs> um, my, my first time going, I was, I was in my second year full time and, um, I wasn't really expecting it to be that large. I thought it was going to be maybe two or three people from each minor league team. I thought there was going to be maybe a few minor league teams, um, that didn't go. I thought it was sort of optional and it couldn't be further from the truth. It's actually the opposite is that teams look for excuses to take their, community relations people, they're ticketing people sort of to learn as much as possible. And the great thing about the business is that if you learn one thing in one year and you sort of snowball that, I mean, it pays dividends in perpetuity for the organization, just one idea. And um, I basically thought it was going, you were going to be uh, rubbing elbows with the major league clubs. Like I thought you were literally going to be like sitting, standing next, like Dave Dombrowski or standing next to John Sherholtz, but it, it really wasn't like that at all. And I really was able to gain an appreciation for the minor league industry because I was like, wow, we don't even see the major league people at all. And there's still thousands of people here. And there's still a huge ballroom in the basement of a massive hotel, um, where you can, you know, see anything you need to see and buy anything you need to buy in the minor league. So it was very impressive. It really wowed me. I mean, it sounds like it's something that we need to see for ourselves, but the, the I always piece... encourage people, I'm not in charge, but I always encourage people, um, especially baseball fans and especially who are, who are part of the game is to really get a better understanding of, of the, the economics of the industry is definitely go down, definitely check out the job fair, definitely check out and just see how many people are there. Definitely check out the trade show and just to see the, the wide range of, of, uh, let's say spokes on the wheel of the industry that you wouldn't think are there, but are there like ranging from t-shirt giveaways to bobbleheads and to all these different things that you're like, Oh, right. Of course. Well, if you're going to, you know, teams need new seats and there's the seat guy and teams need a new video board and there's a video board company and teams need new branding. So there's brand deals. And there's all, you know what I mean? Like there's all these different, um, 
um, subsidiaries of the industry because the industry is so large that it's able to sustain its other companies. It's been able to provide in many other industries because of how big it is. So you mentioned specifically the job pair, but in general, you're talking about everybody who is anybody in ML, ML MILB um, being, you know, sort of within reach. Is this a good spot to start if you were someone who had had the means and wanted to break into the industry, do you think? Yeah, there are books written about the job fair. Um, and I think I, I, I linked it into one of the articles, uh, into one of the, um, into my article, excuse me. So, but I, I, this is a great place to start because you can apply to many different teams and hope to speak to as many different people and to get on the radar. Um, a lot of teams do their hiring at the job fair. And if you are not going to the job fair and you reach out to a team in, let's say, October, November, they will say, look, we're not in position to hire someone right now. Um, but we'll get back to you after the winter meetings and 95% of the time they will hire at the winter meetings because that person is real live and in the flesh and they can hire them and they can say, okay, be at work by February 1st or, you know, some, some date nearby and, um, and they get the job done and they, and I will always recommend people to go to the job fair if you have the means and you can always buddy up with people and share a room or stay at a motel down the road. But to be at the job fair specifically on the Tuesday or Wednesday when the majority of interviews are taking place that is a must for people trying to get into the industry. Now, when you say the getting into the industry, do you mean just the minor league level or is there is this actually like a good training ground to become to work for a major league club or are those two industries basically separate? Um they're kind of separate, but I think if you want to learn how to I, I don't know very minor very many major league teams that have job postings outside of uh, ticket intern or very, very entry level stuff. Um, but it's predominantly for the for the minor leagues. Of course, many people who dream of being in baseball operations, there aren't very many interviews there. Um, those are really through connections and through, um, you know, university connections or through just you know word of mouth of people in the industry. Or if you were a former college player, if you did an internship in, in um, for, for a video organization or where you have sort of relevant skills. But this is really mostly for in the minors where you can get community relations, tickets, stadium operations. Um, really, the the um, the core elements of that that make the minor league team run. So that's really what is there for the job fair. Interesting. So, in a more general sense, I think you you alluded to branding and you've alluded to promotions and all this other stuff. And, and I know there have been teams recently who have simply gone and and rebranded entirely, apparently just to get the attention and to sell the merchandise with the branding. Um, right with all these ridiculous team names ever since, I don't know, the making whoopies and, and on up from there. Um, yeah. I guess the question for me comes is, does winning matter in the context of the minor leagues? Um, not as much as it does for other industries. And that's, I say that as a good thing because uh, it, it's able, it allows the organization to insulate themselves against winning because they don't control uh, the players on the field is that th there's an impetus to be able to say, okay, we're going to provide the best customer service, the best ticket value, the best hospitality, the best um, experience, so that it doesn't matter if you're winning or losing. And in saying that, that's why uh, companies do rebrand and they change their name and they, you know, want to sell merchandise. They want to be more family friendly because it isn't as um, predicated on winning or losing. It doesn't have, you know, you look at a, a major baseball team or a mining base uh, or an NFL team, excuse me, like. When they're winning, that's what really sells tickets, and people go there to see them win. But in the minors, they don't have that, and that's almost a good thing because it allows them to think outside the box, so to speak, and to, and to create an experience um, that is sustainable 
and that is it, that is impervious to winning or losing. But at the same time, you, you know, you've written about this on our site before. There's still a very big value attached to having a name prospect come through your system, correct? Absolutely. It's one of the greatest gifts um, an organization could have is if when one of their players gets into the majors, especially when that player maybe not necessarily might be a, a high draft pick, but if that player um, maybe started their ascent or started to play well and maybe got on the radar of scouts and maybe got on the radar of their farm directors and minor league uh, operations. If they started there, you'll see bobbleheads, giveaways, picture. I mean, they'll be able, the team will be able to monetize that because they own the rights to that guy in, you know, their pictures that they've taken that player and they'll be able to monetize that for many, many years down the road. And that's a great gift that an organization uh, that's a great gift that the organization has when they have a when a guy makes the majors. Indeed, and I, I guess the other weird part that I we should probably remind people is that the money to actually pay the players is not coming from these minor league teams. They're trying to run an organization, yeah. um, you know, that's profitable and and you know viable, but but that's not something that comes in into play for them. They're they're trying to run everything else and keep it up and running, which absolutely I'm, I'm sure is a challenge. And the minor team. Sorry, the minor league team will be able to actually, they take care of the housing operations, um, transportation, uh, where the team is staying at, um, at a local housing complex, or they're going to be staying with housing families. The minor league baseball team takes care of that. The salaries of the players are taken through from the major league side. The minor league team has very, very little to do with that. And just one last thing, just sort of going back to something you said at the meetings, but also this seems to be a thread all the way through. The relationship with the big league team, it seems that there's almost sort of a a parental figure like that really plays plays through this. Just from reading your piece, I don't want to give the whole thing away because I really think people should read it. It's fan, it's really fascinating. But you talked about this sort of like need to rub elbows with the big leaguers. Is that is that all the way through? Or is that just sort of at the big party event at the winter meetings? Well, the big party event at the winter meetings is really when you're invited into a room. And that is when the major league clubs will host you. And that is when you can that is when you can kind of rub elbows. And that's a very good currency for the minor league teams because they're able to gather some information. And that is what they're able to take back with them into their marketplace and to say in meetings, yeah, I was sitting down with, you know, our major league GM or sitting down with their major league president. It's it's helpful to be able to say, yeah, we'd love to have you at our next hot stove. Or we'd love to have you down during the season. We'd love to, it really gets great currency um, for the minor league team. And, and, and that's what the major league, the major league um, organizations are very indexed to the minor league teams if they have a good operation because they're taking care of their players. So they, they will gladly do that. And they also know that that is very good currency for the minor league teams. And that is very important for them to be able, it, it's a very big piece of the industry that they're able to take back with them. Very cool. Very cool. So, again, we highly encourage people to swing by uh, Baseball Prospectus and check out your full article. Um, I think we would like to have you back maybe um, in a little while to talk about some other aspects of, of the minor leagues, because I, I know this would go too long for tonight's interview, but I do want to ask you about, right. about changing affiliations and the, the little dance that goes on every few years when that happens. Um but in, in that, I would say uh, thank you, Bennett, uh, for dropping by. And uh, people can check out your stuff at Baseball Prospectus. Thank you guys very much. Keep up the great work. One thing, we, we, you can find his old stuff at the still existing Baseball Prospectus <laughs> Toronto. It's still there. For the moment, until it gets redirected to somewhere else. But we'll, uh, we'll talk about that later. All right, have a good night. 
And there you go, everything you ever wanted to know about the minor leagues that we were able to cover in 15 minutes. Perhaps we we'll, we should really have him back. Um, yeah. Which does bring us to the... There's a lot more out there than 15 minutes. Brings us to the end of our little podcast, uh, which is the part where I uh, ask Nick first if he has a final thought to contribute. Um, yeah, uh, my final thought would be it, it's been a while since I, I'd spoken to you guys, but uh, since we've last spoken, Shohei Otani had Tommy John surgery, and uh, I've been thinking about it a lot since the season ended, and I am really, really excited to see him come back and, you know, hopefully uh, a year from now or two years from now, be a player that we saw for times at this this last season, I, th I think, you know, we really haven't seen anybody like him uh, as long as I've been watching baseball and from what people tell me for the, the 80 years before that, too. So, you know, my hope is that uh, he recovers fully from the surgery and we're we're able to watch uh, uh, watch a player at, at full strength, because I really think he could have a, a historic and special career uh, based on what we saw in his literally his year, his 23 year old season this year. So. Speedy recovery, Shohei. Wow. Josh? Okay, mine's a little more of a fun one. It's a little game. The Toronto Blue Jays are looking for a new social media manager or in-game coordinator or whatever the position's called. And there were three things. Do you, checkmark, dream of live tweeting Blue Jays games? Well, a couple of us do that already, so that's... <laughs> <laughs> do it for the gram on the daily. That definitely knocks me out. Greg, I assume it knocks you out. Yeah. That sounds Nick, like know. a drug habit, man. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> but here's the big one, Nick, to see if you qualify. Know the correct pronunciation of G-I-F. Oh. Oh. <laughs> no, no, I, I was out at, I was out at the Do the Gram daily, too, to be honest. <laughs> We're gonna don't see it, Nick. <laughs> oh, it, it's Jeff. Oh. No. The, the entire no. Jay's social media account covered in peanut butter for the entire season that Nick worked there. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, so I responded. So when someone responded with your response with a J and I responded with a report, it's abusive or harmful. <laughs> and the Blue Jays responded to that saying one of these responses is the correct one. Leaving <laughs> it open to interpretation. <laughs> Uh, my final thought would be that it is Hall of Fame season again, which is uh, not my favorite time of the year, but certainly uh, one that keeps me interested. Roy Halladay is on the Hall of Fame ballot this year. He is polling well in the early going, um, although uh, the more forward-thinking members of the uh, Baseball Writers Association of America tend to be the ones who submit ballots early. If you're at all interested, I remind you that at NotMrTibbs is the guy to follow on Twitter. Uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame tracker now has a multi-member uh, staff uh, keeping track of who's added and who's subtracted and all that good stuff. So uh, I am looking forward to hopefully um, seeing Roy Halladay inducted alongside Harold Baines, who we already know is a Hall of Famer. <laughs> Sentences I never thought I'd say, folks. All right, that means uh, this has been episode number 125 of the Artificial Turf Wars. You have been Nick Dyka at Nick Dyka and Joshua Housem at Joshua Housem. We were joined by Shai Davidi at Sportsnet, uh, which I believe is at Shai Davidi. Don't know if he's an underscore in there. And Bennett Brower of Baseball Prospectus. And I... At Bennett Brower 5. Oh, he does have a Twitter account. My bad. And uh, you can find me at Coolhead2010. I'm Greg Wisniewski. And we will talk at you in a couple of weeks.